Good morning, Saints. Hey, just a reminder that the uh, uh, conference flyer that's in your bulletin this morning, we're less than two weeks away from the conference, and we have lots of those flyers, so feel free to give them out to your family and friends and enemies and neighbors and anybody else you want to give them to, because there's plenty and we'd like to see a bunch of people here, so check it out. I'm going to be talking to you this morning about uh, the fact that God is just. God is just, and you'll notice a little part one in your notes and on the screen there. Um, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about God's justice, the fact that he is just. And we'll be looking at one aspect this week, different aspect next week. Um, next week's sermon, honestly, is going to be a lot more fun. Uh, so what does that mean for today, Tom? Uh, well, we'll just see as we get into it, okay? Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we... We invite you right now to speak into us by your word. God, don't leave us in the same place that we are right now, but take us forward in you. Allow us to see a, a more complete picture of you and your heart and your character here today that we might know you more fully. And we thank you that you'll do that because you're so faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think maybe uh, as we get started here, we should start by defining terms. When I say that God is just, I am not using the adverb form of that word just, which can mean merely or only. God is just a nice guy. He is a nice guy, but we're talking about the adjective form of that word, uh, which would be defined as guided by truth, reason, justice, and fairness in keeping with truth or fact. Some synonyms would be upright, equitable, fair, impartial. And I should probably warn you right off the bat here that the first half or more of this message may feel a little bit stern. It might seem a little bit heavy, but don't panic. It's because I intended it to be that way. Sorry. See, it, it, I'm convinced if, if we ignore any aspect of God's character, then we end up making a God of our own liking that isn't necessarily the God that's in the Bible. And so honestly, I, I told the elders, this is a, a message that I really didn't want to preach um, because I like to talk about God as loving and caring. And he is, and we'll, we'll get to that, all right? But we also need to understand that he is just. And I think perhaps the, the best word that I could use to describe what I'm going to share with you is sobering because I really want us to see a fuller picture of God and the good news will come in later. So we think of God as being just. Our first inclination is to, to think of like the judge behind the bench who's handing out sentences, decrees, you're guilty and here's your punishment. And the truth is that that's in some ways not necessarily a wrong picture. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. And that's not just an Old Testament concept. James 4, 12, there is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. You know, the, the judgments of God are evident over and over and over throughout Scripture. I mean, think about it, all the way back to the very beginning, God judged Satan, he had deceived Adam and Eve, and God said, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then from there, God went on and pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve. He booted them out of the garden. But that was just the beginning. 
Think about the, the judgment on Cain. Think about the, the judgment on the people that lived before the flood. Think about the judgment upon the people of Sodom. Think about the, the judgment on the people of Egypt. Think about the, the judgment on the people of Israel when they worshiped the golden calf or the multiple judgments as they, they were out there grumbling and complaining. And, and I'm just getting started. Those are just a few highlights. We haven't even reached the point of the kings where, where God pronounced judgment over and over on different kings because they turned their back on God. And it's not just Old Testament. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. I am intentionally trying to scare you a little bit. Sorry. There, there's a clearly painted picture in the Bible of God as judge, a righteous judge who judges rightly and fairly. Barb and I have watched a, uh, a television show on Netflix and one of the things I like about the show, there's a, uh, there's a, one of the main characters is a judge, and she, she always tries to be fair and impartial in all of her judgments in court. She needs some serious help in her personal relationships, but that's another story. Um, but even it, when, when she's in court, even if she knows somebody who's involved in the, the, the proceedings, she always tries to be fair and impartial. And that's, uh, that's the picture, I think, of true justice. And unlike that television judge, God actually is fair and impartial always. He is always just. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, uh, Paul calls God the righteous judge. And, and as I was writing this, uh, I just had this sense that there are, there's somebody or some buddies here who perhaps in the past you've known someone who was a harsh judge. Maybe it was a parent Maybe it was a teacher or a coach in school. Uh, maybe it was an employer. I don't know, but somebody who you had this impression was very harsh in their judgments. And because of that, you've had this wrong picture of God. God is not harsh. He is fair and impartial. He is actually just. Think of the, think of the symbol that we use uh, today of justice, the, the blindfolded lady. That symbolizes impartiality. No, no peripheral vision is going to, to skew her perspective of the facts of the case. And the, then there's the balance scales weighing the facts on both sides of the case, both sides of the argument, what is true, what is right, what is just, if you will. That's what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about just. Deuteronomy chapter 32 for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's our God. Justice, being just, is a part of his nature. It's, it's who he is. Easton's Bible Dictionary puts it like this. Justice is not an optional product of his will, but an unchangeable principle of his very nature. And that idea is pretty clear throughout Scripture. Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. The, let, let the earth rejoice. Let the coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Think about a, a throne. Obviously, there has to be a foundation, something for it to, to sit on. What happens if that foundation is taken away? What happens if any foundation is taken away? Thing falls apart. It crumbles, right? The, the foundation is really, really, really important. It's like it's the foundation or something. 
So, thank you, thank you. So, so if that's not there, there's a problem, but it is there. It is the foundation of his throne, and I think that's pretty significant for us to understand. And, and, and we need to recognize that God's justice is a direct reflection of his holiness. If you understand that holiness is an absence of evil, being separated from evil, then justice is the, the logical, rational conclusion there. Think back to the balance scales that we talked about a minute ago. I've been told that balance scales, if they're made well and balanced correctly, that they're very, very sensitive. So if you put something light or something heavy on it, it's gonna go down. See, God doesn't differentiate among sins like we do. The smallest sin from God's perspective is vile in his sight because he is so, so totally holy, so totally removed from any tainting of sin at all. So think about this. If you take Jesus' teaching to the, its logical outcome, whether you are a mass murderer or you just hate somebody, whether you are a serial adulterer or somebody who as a coworker of mine years ago used to say just likes to check out the scenery, it doesn't make any difference. You're still guilty in God's sight and worthy of eternal damnation. See, God's innate justice means that he cannot overlook sin. Now I know as soon as I said that, some of you thought of uh, Acts 17 where Paul is talking to the people at the Areopagus and he said that God, for a time, overlooked sin, and that's true, he did. But long-term, God cannot continue to do that. Long-term, his justice has to come into play. It has to be dealt with. It's the only just thing to do. So long-term, God can't say, oh, that was just a, a minor infraction. I'm not really going to demand justice. No, the fact that what did that passage in Deuteronomy that we read say? All his ways are justice. The fact that the foundation of his throne is justice, the fact that he is the righteous judge, all of those things tell us that he absolutely cannot overlook sin. Justice demands payment for law-breaking. It has to happen. See, we as, I think we as human beings have a tendency to misunderstand the judgments of God because we are so tainted by sin because we live in a sin-filled world, we don't get it. God can, can at times seem unfair to us. It appears from our perspective that perhaps he's being too harsh. Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 10. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? In, in other words, what, what, what have we done that's so bad? We're, we're really pretty good people. We're, we're nice folks. We, we're law-abiding. Oh, we might break a rule here and there, but we're, we're way better than the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Philistines. Come on. We're, we're good people. Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Whew. It was because of their stubborn, evil wills. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of people I know. Sounds like me. See, 
you and I have a tendency to diminish sin because our consciences have been compromised. We have, I think in many ways we've been seared by sin. We can tend to think that sin isn't really such a bad thing because we live in a, a sin-filled world. We don't have the same sense of justice that God does. Let me, let me illustrate this real quickly. We see someone who has something, whether that's, I don't know, a talent or a possession or whatever that we don't have, and we think it would be right, it would be equitable, it would be fair, it would be just if we had that thing. You might be familiar with the, uh, the name Andrew Carnegie. He lived most of his life during the 19th century. When he died in 1919, he was worth $300 billion dollars. Now, I have no idea what that would mean in today's dollars, but it's a number way bigger than what I can imagine. And one, one point during his career, uh, Carnegie was approached by a man who really berated him because he didn't think he should have all that money. The guy was a socialist. He thought all wealth should be distributed evenly among all people. And so Carnegie asked his secretary to calculate what he, his actual possessions were worth at that point. He did, while the secretary was doing that, he checked out what the current population of the world did, a little math, and he said to his secretary, give this gentleman 16 cents, that's his share of my wealth. <laughs> see, see we, we think we want justice, but oftentimes all we're doing is coveting. And, and, and that mindset, I think, only just shows how steeped in sin we really are. We don't understand it. But see, God is holy, totally separate and removed from sin so he can be impartial in judging sin. Again, our perspective is, is skewed. You know, we might look at God's response to sin and think it's harsh, but, but it's not. If he didn't mete out justice, if he didn't ultimately punish sin, then he would be false. He would not be true to his nature. See, there are people today that would declare that God is not going to judge the world, that what we do is of no consequence. Modern society has created this image of God who is kind, is merciful, is benevolent, and knows nothing of justice or anger or judgment. Joel Osteen talking to thousands of people there in the building where he was speaking and tens of thousands by way of video, he said this, I don't care who you are, what you've done, or who you've done it with, God is not angry with you. Now, if he had qualified that statement and said that he was talking to people who knew salvation through Jesus Christ, I'd go along with him, but he didn't. And so I beg to differ. And it's not because I want to. I'd actually like that statement to be true. But it's not true. Psalm 7, verse 11, it says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The, the New King James puts it like this, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. 2 Kings 17, 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Of course, you need to read the whole context of that, but the fact is God was angry with his people right there. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 talks about the, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You read Revelation chapter 6, people are wanting the mountains and the rocks to fall on them because the wrath of God is such a fearsome thing. And I'm just skimming the surface with some of these things here, guys. I think Joel Osteen needs to actually read his Bible. Sorry. 
So, so how do you square the idea that God isn't angry with you no matter what you've done with the fact that there is a God that we need to be saved from his wrath? You can't from a scriptural perspective. Without the gospel, apart from, from knowing forgiveness through Christ, actually God is angry and he's very angry and he has every right to be. We, his creatures, have shoved aside his laws, his commands, and said that we can live without those. But we can't. Because there is a God of justice who knows right and wrong far better than we do. And he simply cannot ignore justice over the long term. He can't sidestep it. Justice is an intrinsic part of who God is. He can't act like it's not. And we... We human beings, we don't like that idea. Pushing against the idea that there is going to be a judgment, that God will judge us, has been with us from the very beginning. Think about the, the, uh, the, the garden, Satan talking to Eve. What did he say to her when he was tempting her? He said, you won't die. In other words, God won't judge you. But it wasn't true then, and it's not true now. I mentioned earlier Paul talking to the folks at the Areopagus in Acts 17. He said that God overlooked sin for a time, but then it goes on to say, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There is a day coming, a day of reckoning, a day of judgment that is going to happen. Billy Graham told the story of Robert G. Ingersoll. Ingersoll was an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War, but he was also an agnostic. He had some serious doubts about the existence of God, and apparently he traveled and lectured about his doubts about uh, a coming judgment, about hell and all of that kind of thing. And toward the end of one of his lectures, a man in the back of the room, clearly inebriated, stood up and he said, I sure hope you're right, Brother Bob. I'm counting on it. Fact is, there's a whole lot of people that are counting on it. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards said it like this, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution, your own care and prudence, and best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a fallen rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it, the creation groans with you. Those are pretty strong words. But according to God's justice, because of our sin, you and I deserve hell. And think about it more deeply. Why did God make us? What, what was his purpose in created, creating mankind? It was so that we could be in relationship with God and with one another, right? So what does sin do? It breaks that relationship with him and with one another. Think about it this way. If there is a steel barrier between my wife and I, it makes little difference whether that steel barrier is an inch thick or 500 feet thick. I still can't see her, I can't hear her, I can't touch her. That's what sin does. Doesn't matter whether it's a little or a lot. We're still separated from God and from one another. So if relationship with God and with one another is what we're all about, then anything that breaks that relationship from God, the perspective of God's justice, it has to be judged. Are you with me? 
So I'm going to get really personal here. That means that your, your covetousness, your lust, your gluttony, your pride, your laziness, your lack of discipline, your failure to trust God, your you fill in the blank, any of those things separates us from him and is worthy of judgment. According to Revelation 20, there is coming a day of judgment. And on that day, according to God's justice, his right and true and impartial justice, if not for Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we are all destined for eternity apart from him. Here's the good part. Fortunately for us, God is not only just, he's also merciful. Some time ago, I read a book by John Fisher. Really good book, 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee Like Me. In the book, he, uh, he shared Exodus chapter 20. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And then Fisher goes on to give a really good insight about God's mercy. He says this, God is both just and merciful, and there should be no doubt here which one of those qualities he favors. He leans toward kindness a thousand to four. Those are pretty good odds and every bit necessary when you consider how stubborn and disobedient we are. And I realize that theologians warn us against pitting any of God's attributes against one another, but I'd have to agree with John Fisher. See, see the, the fact is that if God was more just than merciful, then we would never know anything of mercy. If those two things were equal, then they would come to some sort of equilibrium where they were both kind of at the same level. But the fact is that according to James 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. And aren't you glad? Jesus died. And because of that, God's justice, his judgment has been fulfilled because of what Jesus did. Mercy triumphed over judgment. Martin Luther, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, he said this, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. And that doesn't diminish the, the, the justice of God. It simply enhances his mercy. His justice is complete. It's been paid in full because of what Jesus did on the cross. Okay, so does that mean that we can just ignore sin, that what we do today doesn't make any difference at all? No, definitely not. Part of God's character even today is still justice. If you keep pushing him away, you can end up suffering consequences. Pastor Nick used to say that uh, God has a woodshed. Those he loves, he disciplines. And I'll even go so far as to say that I don't believe in the, the concept of once saved, always saved. Now, let me balance that and tell you that I also don't believe in what some have referred to as eternal insecurity, that you're always wondering whether or not you're okay with God. No, Jesus' finished work has taken care of that. But it does seem clear to me from the scripture that we can willingly walk away from his grace if we want to. We can repeatedly, intentionally choose over and over to sin so that our consciences become seared. And that's the reason we need to maintain a healthy and biblical understanding of God's justice. It's a very sobering passage that I read a while back, uh, just actually a few days ago. Other passage that, passages that... that uh, 
kind of convey the same sentiment, but having just read this in context, uh, it, it, I just felt compelled to include it in this message. Second Kings chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were carried off into captivity because of their sin because they had forgotten about the God who had rescued them from captivity. Sin is not to be trifled with. It is heinous in the sight of God. It is the thing that separates us from him and from one another. It is the thing that sent Jesus to the cross. And please understand, I am not trying to magnify sin. I am not trying to make it worse than it is, but I'm trying to make it every bit as bad as it is. And yes, Jesus' death and resurrection means that our sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean, though, that we should be dabbling in sin or playing with sin. It's a deadly enemy. And again, that's not to put some kind of heavy on us. It's to force us back to the cross, cause us to recognize anew how desperately we need His mercy and His grace. God is just. And I want to remind you of a quote that we've heard a couple of times already in this series. Steve shared it first and then Daryl repeated it and you're going to get another, another time here today. But I want us to really ponder this and, 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 and some of you know I'm not a big Bill Johnson fan. So if I'm sharing this quote, if I'm quoting him, this must be pretty worthwhile. He said this, wherever God reveals something about his nature, it always comes with the invitation to know him in that way. Never does the understanding of his nature come to us just to make us more theologically sound. That's important but it is secondary. What's important is to know him in that way, to encounter him. So, so we, need to, we need to recognize God's justice, but not just so that we can know that intellectually, but instead to recognize that he is a, a just God who will not allow sin to go unpunished. And yes, Jesus has taken the punishment, but, but I want you to ponder that just for a minute. Jesus took our punishment. He was, he was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that you and I deserve because of a just God saying that we are sinners, that we have sinned, we have, we, have, we have fought back and fought against him. Jesus took all of that. Doesn't that give you a different perspective of sin? It should. It's not some trite little insignificant thing. And when we recognize how bad our sin is and what Jesus did for us, that should magnify God's grace all the more. Priscilla Shirer in her video series, Discerning the Voice of God, she said this, when God chooses to speak to us, his word will always in some way be designed to point us to him and open up our understanding so that we can experience him more fully. Without knowledge of the nature of God, obedience to him becomes more difficult, if not impossible. The more you know and believe to be true about who God is and what he can do, the more willing you become to obey what he commands. In other words, in the, in the context that we're talking about today, the, the more we recognize and acknowledge God's justice, the more willing we are to do what he wants us to do and to stay away from what he doesn't want us to do. Our God is just. And yes, he's merciful, and that should be the aspect that we focus on the most, but at the same time, we dare not lose sight of the fact that he is indeed just. 
In a few minutes, we're going to receive communion together. And we're going to hear some really familiar words from 1 Corinthians. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I think that might be a good time to examine our hearts. Next week, we're, uh, we're going to look at a different aspect of God's justice. We're going to look at God's heart toward the downtrodden, toward those who have been defeated, toward the, the widow and the orphan, what justice means in that regard. But for now, I want to challenge us to see sin in a different light because if we do, it will cause us to recognize the mercy of God all the more. And there's one other aspect of this that uh, I need to put in here because I think it's really important. If we really understand the judgment of God, it will help push us toward evangelism. See, recognizing the severity of sin pushes us away from the idea that we are somehow superior to those, those nasty, sinful people in the world. Because we're not. Those are just us before we came into God's mercy. I remember when our kids were in high school and supper table one night, they were talking about a relatively new gal in school and she was always pushing against the rules and they didn't really like that. She was in my wife's class so my wife knew her. And I'll probably never forget my wife's response that night at the supper table. She looked at the kids and she said, you guys, that was your dad when I first met him. See, when we recognize who we are and what God has done in our lives, we want to share that with others. We don't want to, we don't want to look down on those people. No, it's just us without the mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we have encountered your word, Lord, we have been convicted by your word. Lord, the, the last thing I want to do is, is squash us, but I do want us to know the conviction of your Holy Spirit to recognize that apart from your mercy, we're lost. But God, we thank you so much today that you have rescued us, that you have drawn the likes of us into your kingdom and even into your heart to know you. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, right now, we, we purposefully quiet our hearts before you and invite you to, to convict us in any specific ways that we need to hear your voice, any ways that we have pushed you aside because of our sin. Lord, forgive us for those. And God, we thank you that you remind us of truth. The truth of who you really are. May we be, may we remember that, Lord, day by day, not to, not to be in fear of you because, because we're, we're in your family, we're part of, of, of you. But Lord, to recognize that we don't want to hurt you, we don't want to, to push you away, we don't want to distance ourselves from you. We want to do what you want us to. Lord, may your word 
cause us here this morning to be different. And we thank you that you will because you're faithful. Amen.